The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Morning, church. How's everybody doing this morning? Hey, uh, grab your Bibles and turn to Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4 this morning. And while you're turning there, if you'll lend me your ear, I have a few announcements I want to run past real quick. Um, first off, right after service today, we're going to be having our first pastor's coffee. Um, what that is, is we've just, we've noticed through the years that a lot of people come in and it's so easy for people to just sort of slip through the cracks. And we're just trying to do a better job at, at greeting you guys and getting to know you a little bit better and trying to really serve you to the best of our ability by helping you, you know, answer questions or, or, or find places that you can kind of graft into the family better, whatever that might be. So right after service, uh, me and the pastoral staff are going to be blitzing out of here and over into the coffee shop. And so if you are new or new-ish at Heritage, we would love to meet you over there, just tell you a little bit about ourselves and our church and meet you face-to-face and, and, and be able to answer questions, stuff like that. Just a really short time. I think the last one lasted maybe 10 minutes. So just nice short time to be able to hang out and meet you guys. Meet me right after service in the coffee shop. That'd be great. Um, also, what else we got? Um, two services consideration, but that's really for the people before first service. We just basically tell them to get their kids out of the way so your guys' kids have room. So you're welcome. We do that for you. Um, although after service, I will remind you that the prayer room is open. Uh, that's kind of a new thing here. Just please take advantage of that. Just know that the guys are there would love to be able to meet you and pray with you after service. That's out in the hallway. And if there are any donuts available, are there any donuts available? Are they all gone? You guys ate them all? Well done. Nice. All right. It's almost Baptist of us. You know what I mean? So, uh, sorry, it's where I grew up. Potlucks, things like that. Anyway, um, and then finally, um, as you guys know, here at Heritage, we have a thing that's called the Milestone Program. And the Milestone Program is, is just something that um, the guys kind of put together to, to walk with families through, um, well, really just child rearing. It, it starts at birth and goes all the way through launching your children off into college. And, and what we've done is tried to identify some specific moments, some mileposts, if you will, um, through the life of, you know, your children as you're parenting and raising your children, just some things that we should say, hey, we need to shoot for this by this point, just in, in, in kind of just raising disciples for Christ in our home. And we believe that it is the family's responsibility and role to be the primary disciple makers in their home. And that is the church's responsibility to come around the families and help with that. And so um, yesterday, Milestone 5 took place where a group of families kind of, um, of, freshman and sophomore in high school met with Pastor Jeremy and they just spent some time yesterday morning kind of going through the word and looking at some specific things um, that are very applicable for that age group. So for example, they talked about how to define biblical womanhood and manhood. As we know, there's all sorts of confusion, not just gender confusion in general, but just what are the roles? What should we be doing? What does it look like to grow up to become a man or a woman of God? And so they, they spent some time defining that. They looked at common targets for spiritual maturity at this age. Like, hey, as we're walking through these next couple of years together, what are some targets we should set as we're trying to learn about God and his grace and mature as Christians? And then finally, they looked at how to navigate the changing roles of parents and teens. As you know, teenagers, they're starting to, uh, you know, get their feet under them, wanting to grow a little bit, wanting to stretch a little bit, wanting a little more freedom. Mom and dad are terrified to give them that freedom, and there's tension 
that results in that. So how do you navigate some of that as you're, you're learning to more walk beside your son or daughter rather than drag them behind you, if that makes sense. And so, um, so they spent all day yesterday with Pastor Jeremy, and what we want to do is take an opportunity to not just celebrate that, but to involve the whole church community in coming around those families and, and to do this somewhat regularly so that we can um, pray for and commission these families as they kind of embark on this new stage of life. So um, if you would, if you are one of the families that are here, and they know that we're doing this, if you're one of those families that were here yesterday, would you stand up it, just kind of right there where you are? There's some right there. They all sat on this side. You guys, if, unless you have crazy long arms, you're going to be over there. This is what we want to do. Um, and we also have a photo. Could you put the photo up of the other families that were there for people that were early service and stuff? Um, you'll have to look at this. They look like ghosts up there. But um, if anybody wants to bless our church and donate $20,000 worth of projectors, we'd love that. Just, you know. Wish list. Anyway, but what, here's what we want to do. We want to just take opportunity to pray for these guys, to pray for the kids, to pray for the parents as they kind of embark on this new season of life. Um, and just as the church community to lay hands on them and just bless them and pray with them. So if you're around them and you want to throw a hand on a shoulder as we pray, and the rest of us, if you'll join me in praying for them, and we'll pray for our time together as well. Father, I thank you so much for the gift of parenting and the gift of family. And more than anything, for the gift of your word that helps us to navigate the difficulties that are associated with it. I thank you, God, for these families, Lord, who have seen the value of your word and the wisdom that's contained in it. And they desire, Lord, to, to follow you and that their family might more accurately reflect the gospel. That they might become disciples themselves and raise disciples themselves. And I just thank you, God, for them, for them committing of their time to seek your will for their life, for their children's lives. And I pray, God, you would just bless them. Lord, would you lead them as they seek to walk in your righteousness? Would you develop relationships between parent and child? Lord, show them, I pray, the path that they're to walk and then empower them to walk it. I pray, Lord, against condemnation. I pray, Lord, against the enemy that would seek to trip our children and young people up. And I pray, God, that you would protect them, them and those who weren't able to be there yesterday. Lord, our calling as Christians is to raise disciples, and that begins in our home. So Lord, help us to do a better and better job of that. But God, we can't do that in our own effort. We need your spirit, and we need your word to come together within the confines of our home and to produce fruit. So I pray your blessing over these families and others, and I pray, Lord, even for our greater church family as we're really doing the same thing right now. As we bow before your word, creator of heaven and earth, I pray, God, that your word would produce fruit in our lives. Lord, help us to treasure your word this morning. May your word change us this morning. Teach and lead and grow us this morning. And may we walk away from this place closer to you than we were when we came. And so, Lord, as we open your word, we pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight. O oh, my rock, my king, in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Thank you, guys. If you guys would, grab your Bibles, Philippians chapter 4, and in honor of the Word of God, let's stand as we read Philippians 4, 10 through 13 together. I want to warn you guys, the first service remembered what to do when we do this. Let's see how you guys do with the extra sleep. Philippians 4, beginning in verse 10 and reading through verse 13. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly. That now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. 
Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for, for I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing, of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. This is the word of the Lord. They beat you. First service beat you. You may be seated. Philippians chapter 4. Looking at verse 10 through 13. And before I start down this, I want to throw a question at you guys that I want you to simmer in a little bit. And depending on how deep you choose to go with this as you're thinking about this stuff, it's the kind of question that can kind of undo you a little bit. Imagine your life as it is right now. The good and the bad. The things you're struggling with the temptations you're wrestling against, the sin that you might even feel at times is having its way with you, the fight that you might have, maybe the relationships you have with other people, the job that you have, the income that you have, the body that you have, the way you look, the wife you have or don't have, the husband you have or don't have, the job you have or don't have, the income you have or don't have, wherever you are in life right now. If God never changed any of it. If you stayed right where you are for 20 more years and nothing changed, no improvement whatsoever. In fact, if it even got worse, at the end of 20 years, could you still stand in a church service, extend your hands to the heaven and say, God, you have been good to me. Could you do that? It's easier to say when we feel like things are going well right now, but what if you're wrestling with something? What if that weight you wanted to lose only goes up? What if that relationship you want never comes to fruition? What if that child that wandered away never returns home? What if that job and that tension you feel never happens? What if that income never comes? Or what if you were to lose those things? Could you still, 20, 30 years down the road, lift your hands to God and say, you are enough. You've been good to me. Not I've existed, not just God, you somehow got me through. I'm, I barely made it. But like, could you say, but you've been good to me. You've been gracious to me. No one has taken care of me. No one has loved me like you have. Could you do that? That's a hard question. Could you be totally content with where you are today? if today lasted another 30 years? Because we all think bigger, better growth. But, but what if that didn't happen? Paul understands that concept. So Paul in Corinthians talks about an affliction he was facing. You guys may know this. The text refers to it as a thorn in the flesh. There was something that was afflicting Paul and he begged God to take it away. The word even says that it was so bad he despaired of life. Now, the, the Christian churchiness in us doesn't want to face that a lot of times for what it really is. You know what it means? I want to die. We would refer to that as suicidal. Something that was afflicting him so bad he did not want to live anymore. And he went to God repeatedly and begged God, please take this away. And God's answer was, my grace is good enough for you. My grace is sufficient. You'll be okay. So could you do that? right now where you are, or if you lost the position you're in right now, could you be content in another 30 years and still stand before God, lift your hands to the heaven and say, you've been good to me, God. 
You've been gracious to me, God. That's a tough question. The longer you sit in it, the tougher it gets. Now, we're in the book of Philippians, and Paul's kind of talking about this. Because as he looks at the life of this church that he planted some years ago, he thinks at best they might hold, but it's probably going to get worse. Life's probably going to get a little bit harder. Some of the freedoms they enjoy might go away. The persecutions that they've been pushing against or that they're starting to feel are only going to intensify. And Paul writes this from jail, so he totally gets it at this moment. And he wants them to be so grounded that 20 years later, they still can look to Jesus and say, you are good. You've been good to me. Not merely survived, but you've been good to me, God. You didn't just get me through, but you were kind to me in those things. And he writes it from prison, which is ironic because no one's more free than Paul. No one's more free than Paul. Oh, sure, he's in a cell. Oh, sure, he's in a cage. But his heart, his mind, his soul, his spirit is as free as anyone on the face of the earth in that moment because his joy and his freedom is not rooted in circumstances around us. So if the circumstances never change, he's okay. And he can still stand there before God and say, you've been good. If the circumstances get worse and he's beheaded, he can still, well, it'd be tough to say you've been good. But when he gets to heaven, he's not gonna be blaming God for that. He's gonna be, God, you've been good to me. And he wants this for his church. And so he wants them to not just make it through hard times, but their spirit to be free as they go through hard times. And this is what we all want, right? I mean, more than anything, what we really want isn't money. Money, to many, seems like an avenue to freedom. I can get what I want. I can do what I want. I can be who I want. I can go where I want. That's what money is. Money's a ticket to go somewhere or be something, what we want is freedom. We think if we have money, we won't have to worry about that. We won't have to worry about this. We can get help with that. I can pay those bills and I won't have stress. But I have spent time over the years with uh, one person in particular several years ago, one of the wealthiest people in the entire valley. I had never seen so much anxiety over money, which they had an infinite amount of. And absolute like need clinical help level anxiety over money. So you can have that, think it's going to give you freedom, and still be imprisoned. Paul wants, it, Paul wants us to be free. And that's really what we don't want at the end of the day. We want to be able to lay down at night, sit down on our couch with our spouse or whoever, and lay down at night in our bed, put our head on the pillow, and have that freedom of conscience that just says, I'm okay. I'm okay. We want to wake up in the morning and not have that instant thought pop into our mind that makes our stomach go, oh yeah, I forgot about that. You ever had that? Like there's something coming at you and you sleep through the night and you had that blissful sleep, which maybe you use Tylenol PM to get, whatever the case may be, I don't judge. But then you get to that end and, and for a moment you forgot that problem's there and then you remember and it's, Bleh. you know what I'm talking about? Like we just want to be Okay. We just want to have peace. And dare we say we want joy, not just peace. That's what Paul wants for us. Paul wants us to have that kind of peace and joy. And so the context of Philippians 4, which is a deep, heavy, meaty passage, is just that, that we can be, I'm okay. I'm all right. In fact, I'm well. I am good. I have the peace of God no matter what 
happens around us. If God should never lift a finger to ease any other burden, if God should never send another gift our way, that we would be able to stand at the end of our life and say, God is enough. He was so good to me. How dare I could ever complain to him no matter how many years of quote unquote misery I endured. God is good. That's what Paul wants for us. That's what Paul wants for us. And so he writes, and we've been looking through this, this idea of the peace of God and the joy of God. And Paul's given us advice. He's talked about the things that we think, that, that as we bring our mind to bear on certain things, we need to understand that what we consume our thoughts with will largely determine what kind of person we are, and it will absolutely affect the kind of peace that we have. And so he turns our eyes and our mind towards Jesus. And then last week we saw Christianity is not just a thinking faith, but it's also a doing faith. And the things that we do will have a direct bearing on the peace of God in our lives. And so he says, hey, the things you've learned from me, the things I've taught you, do them and the peace of God will sustain you and hold you. And so he's saying, hey, listen, difficult times are coming. Be careful what you think. Be careful what you consume. Be careful what you bring all your faculties to bear on. And listen, do these things. Trust me. I want to root you in to the gospel and to the kingdom of God so much that if the storms of life come, they can't knock you off this path. You will be stable. You will be the wise man who's built his house upon the rock. And so he's talked about what we think. He's talked about what we do. And today, he's gonna bring all that to sort of a conclusion of sorts in this same topic with the idea of contentment. And it's in the framework of fear and anxiety. And that's exactly where the idea of contentment belongs. Contentment is maybe, uh, th there's maybe been no other culture in the history of the world that's more primed or more needs a sermon on contentment than the culture that we live in right now. I mean, our culture is full of discontentment. In fact, our culture wants you. Do you know this? Our culture wants you to have discontentment in your life because we are a consumer-driven culture. They want you to want and need more. That's, that could really sum up much of the world that's out there. More, more money, more toys, better toys, whatever the thing is, whatever you have, it wants you to have more. And we are all in on that theme, man, aren't we? You ever get like a brand new car? It might be the, might be the nicest car you've ever had. And then the new model comes out and it's got something yours doesn't have and you feel ripped off. You know what I mean? Why couldn't you bring the Bluetooth last year, huh? You know what I'm talking about? Like you get the nicest car, like you go to Africa with that car and people would think you're the wealthiest guy in the world but because it doesn't have Bluetooth, we're just a piece of junk. It's true, right? Our phones, our phones are more powerful than the biggest computers the world ever had years ago. I mean, it's, it's insane what we can do with our phones. But the stupid batteries only last 10 hours. <laughs> right? We need a new one. It's not thin enough. Are you kidding me? That? How weak are you? You need a lighter phone than that. And, and do you realize how they mess with us? Because they go, we got to get the phone smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. And then what did iPhone do? iPhone Plus. Now they're going bigger again. No, no, you need the bigger one. The iPad's got smaller. Now the iPad Plus, and they're, they're going the other. They are totally yanking us around. <laughs> and we love it. We are in. I need a smaller phone. No, you need a bigger phone. I need a bigger phone. It's like a Jedi mind trick. That's what they're doing. Our culture is totally training us to be discontent with where we are so that they can come in with the answer that's going to fulfill all the emptiness that we have. That's our culture right now. 
And you see it in the self-help books, five steps to this, seven steps to that. What's the root of that? I'm not content with where I am. I want to change the circumstances in my life. And so how am I going to do that? Well, here's some wealthy, successful people. I'll follow their seven steps. And if we find a book that has six steps, we'll buy that one instead because we want it easier and faster. Five steps, I am in. Do you have a one step? Like that, that's what we want. And, and sometimes it's for good reasons that we're discontent. Sometimes it's for bad reasons. But contentment is a major issue in our culture right now. And it is in that context that we come to one of the most misused verses in the whole Bible. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Boom, bumper sticker, t-shirts, sports stars. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. It's cool, right? And a lot of people using verses like this or others, will treat Christianity like one of those self-help books. Oh, okay. I'm not content with my life right now where I'm at. I don't like who I am. I don't like where I am, my position in life. I don't like what I have. I'm not content right now, so I'll try Christianity. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Well, my heroes are saying it. You guys remember Evander Holyfield? He had the purple robe. He would come out in the boxing thing and we had to pull for him because we're Christians and who's his nemesis? Mike Tyson. Can't pull for him, right? He's biting guys' ears off, biting Evander's ears off. So we got to pull for Evander Holyfield. Did you ever notice, didn't it feel a little bit weird? Can you just be honest when the guy's like, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, including beat that guy to a pulp so that he can't walk or talk for days, embarrass him in front of his children and make him bleed for Jesus. <laughs> didn't that feel weird? Or Tim Tebow, he uses it. I can do all things, paragraph, except play quarterback, for, through Christ who strengthens me. Hey, I'm a Bronco fan. I watched it a lot. Trust me, I saw. Now Steph Curry, that's on all of his shoes. Look, that's great. Those are good things. But what happens is when you take a verse like that out of context or something, it can become no different than the self-help book that people want to buy. And they go, okay, then I'm going to try Christianity out because I'm not happy with my current circumstances. And, and I'm hearing prosperity theologians and I'm seeing all these people on TV that are telling me Jesus wants me to have stuff and, and I'm going to conquer giants and I'm going to take on Goliath and I'm going to win, win, win because I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And so they'll try it out just like any other self-help philosophy because they're trying to change the circumstances circumstances around them rather than allowing the gospel to change what's going on inside us. And the root of this verse is not about exterior circumstance. It's not you can take that stuff down because you have Jesus. It's that you can be content in here no matter what's going on around here because you have Jesus. That's a much faster way of doing this sermon. I could just say amen. <laughs> but there's no way I'm gonna. <laughs> I get paid per word, just so you guys know. <laughs> No. And what happens is when you approach Christianity from that angle and it doesn't work out, if you are the one who God didn't fix your cancer, God didn't heal your marriage, God didn't bring your spouse you've been waiting for, God never fixed your income, in fact, you lost your job, whatever the case may be, then Christianity to you can become just another one of those books. Well, I tried that one and it just didn't work for me. The Bible talks a lot about contentment. This is the vein by which that verse actually flows. We want more, we want easier, we want to be better. And the Bible's saying, I want you to be okay right now. 
regardless of what's going on around you. I want you to be okay now. And the Bible has a lot to say about contentment. We, we tend to treat contentment as like one of those like JV sins. It's like a B, maybe even a C level sin. It's like the ones that, there's certain sins we see it in another Christian, whether it be sexual immorality or things like that. We will not tolerate, we're gonna deal with that when he's not content. Well, no one's perfect. You know, we'll just sort of let that one slide a little bit. But the Bible actually emphasizes contentment a whole lot more than I ever realized, even as I was studying some of this kind of stuff. First Timothy, Paul's writing, he's talking about the, the false teachers that are out there. And he talks about false teachers who use godliness as a means of great gain. And in First Timothy 6, 6, he says, but godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. Hebrews 13 says, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Now there's another verse we like and we should. That's a great, great, great truth. He will never leave us or forsake us. But it's spoken to us in Hebrews in the context of contentment. Hey, don't worry about it. I mean, you got food, clothes, you're fine because Jesus will never leave you or forsake you. So be content. And then we have the 10th commandment. The 10th commandment, thou shalt not covet. It's an issue of contentment. It's looking at your neighbor's home, wife, cow, whatever the case may be, looking at your neighbor's livestock, looking at your neighbor's car, phone, whatever the case may be and going, I want that. I'm not content with what I have. I want that. So why is that such a big issue? Why is it such a big sin? I mean, we want something. Is that really like 10 commandments level kind of a sin? Is that the case? Well, there's some things about discontentment that if we need to ponder and think about, it's much more significant than we give it credit for on the surface. Because first of all, discontentment at its core is a failure to trust God. And this is the root of the first sin in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve had everything. They had direct fellowship with God. They had perfection. They had Eden. Just one tree. So silly, but one tree. That's all they had to do was say no to. And Satan comes and wants to tempt them. And what's the first thing he does? He stirs discontentment in their soul. He says, did God really say that? God, God's holding out on you, actually. Because there's good stuff in that tree. And he just doesn't want you to have it. You'll be like him. He starts telling, it's not enough just to be with God. It's not enough just to be under God or blessed by God. Now I want to be God. And so he stirs discontentment and causes them to see this other fruit. And they go, oh, I want that. And that's what, that's what happens. They take it. It's the opposite of the 10th commandment. It's, it's really, next, it's also it, the first commandment in reverse. The first commandment is what? Thou shalt have no other gods before me. And discontentment is taking something and going, I know I have God, but I really need this in order to be happy and holding up this thing. I can't say God is good if he doesn't give me this. That's where this can lead. Discontentment is also obviously ingratitude to God. You can't be thankful to God and then also be upset that you didn't get the other thing that you want. So it's ingratitude. It's not being thankful for where you are. It's arrogant. It's a sin of pride. It's saying, I know better what's good for me than God does. And so there's arrogance in it. It's lustful. I want, I need. It's, it's about our desires and then following our desires rather than following and trusting in God. It's entitlement. I deserve better. I don't have what I deserve. I want this. And it destroys worship. 
You, you can't lift your hands to God and give him thanks for everything he's done for you while you're pointing a finger at him for what you didn't get. And so discontentment destroys worship. It, it also prevents love of neighbor. Discontentment can cause you to hate someone you've never even met because jealousy is ugly. And you can see people driving a nicer car than you. You ever saw a person with that really, really fancy car that double parked and you just can't stand them all the way? You have no idea who's driving that car. And it's like they've offended you. You know, those jerks. You double parked that Ferrari too. And that, that's, you, you can't show the kind of love to your neighbor that you would show to yourself if you're so focused on yourself that you end up resenting your neighbor because they have something that you don't want. And then there's, a, there's just a practical reason in this. If I can just give you a practical reason why we should be concerned um, with this idea of contentment is because this text that we're looking at in Philippians 4 comes under the framework of dealing with fear and anxiety and how to have joy. And contentment is the opposite of anxiety. Anxiety is, what's gonna happen? I need this, I need that to work out. I'm scared because I don't know what's gonna happen over here. And contentment is, I'm okay. That's what we want. I'm okay. I'll be okay. I am okay. God's good. Maybe that comes through. Maybe it doesn't. Maybe he gives me that. Maybe I don't. I'm okay. It's the exact opposite of anxiety. And I, I know that's resonated with our church. I've heard from many of you as we've been talking about anxiety and these things. And so for that reason alone, it should be something that concerns us greatly. Now, we need to know something. I want you to know something about um, how I and the other pastors here prepare sermons. A lot of people think that pastors just do nothing all week long, that we just like, you know, have coffee with people once in a while and just read the Bible and go, oh, God's good, and just meditate and pray. That would be awesome if that's really the way that life works, but it didn't. But what ends up happening is a lot of times people think, so then the pastor comes in on Saturday morning. He's probably emailed my wife and heard about the things that I'm struggling with, and he comes in on Saturday morning and goes, now how can I just mess them up so bad? make them feel so terrible that they have to keep coming back. Just consume them with guilt and all these kind of things. And I just want to assure you that that's not the case. Like any, any good Bible teacher should approach the scriptures and first let those things permeate their own soul before sharing those and teaching those things out if you want that to have any sort of impact. And I can tell you for myself, man, just studying some of these things here and, and asking God to speak to me and looking at different areas of my life, I was just like... Man, I'm discontent in all sorts of places, and it affects even behavior in all sorts of places. And Paul's no different. Paul is absolutely no different in this, for sure. I mean, in Romans chapter 7, Paul writes in Romans chapter 7 that he was kind of going through the Word, he's reading the Old Testament, he's feeling really good about himself. I'm a good, I'm a good guy, I'm a godly man, I'm nailing it in all these areas. And it says, until the law came. And he tells us what that law was. What was that thing that he read that undid him? It was, thou shalt not covet. And he read that and starts going, man, if that's what it means to be godly, I'm not even close he realized how he was just wrecked with that. He had all sorts of things I want, I desire, all sorts of places that he was discontent, things that he was jealous of, maybe even with regards to God's position and his own desire for importance. And that verse played a role in even Paul's awakening to the Spirit. So it's okay when these things kind of have their way. In our culture, man, discontentment should wreck to some degree or another, everybody. Because we're being trained to be discontent by the very world around us. Now, I want you to think about something as Paul writes. Paul's in prison. 
And we know from Philippians chapter 2 about how this kind of thing all came about. In fact, what Philippians, how it even got there. Because Paul was in prison and the Philippians, the people in Philippi found out that Paul was in jail. And at a certain point, they got together a gift, whether it be money, whatever it is, we don't know for sure. But they got this gift together and they gave it to a man named Epaphroditus and they sent him to Paul. And so he shows up in Rome with Paul and uh, Philippians chapter two tells us that Epaphroditus got really, really sick. It's near the end of of Philippians chapter two. And he gets really, really sick so much that like Paul's even stressing out thinking this guy might die. He gets really sick, but God has mercy on him. And God restores Epaphroditus. And so the text tells us that Paul then, in verse 27, it says, Indeed, he was ill near death, Philippians 2, 27, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but me also, lest I should have sorrow on sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. Okay, hear this. Talking about... Paul and about teachers and about learning things and not teaching from some position of influence that's unaffected by the things he's talking. Think about what Paul says. I'm in prison. Epaphroditus comes. He brings the gift. He's really, really sick and he gets better. But now Paul's like, I'm glad to send him back to you with this letter. He would carry the letter of Ephesians back. So, I mean, excuse me, of Philippians. So Philippians is almost in a certain sense a thank you letter as well. But he he sends this back with him and he says, I'm really eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again and that I may be less, what? Anxious. This is the guy who then, a chapter later, skip chapter three, come into four, and what does he say? Be anxious for nothing, hypocrite. This is what he's saying. Like, Paul understands Paul understands the temptations to worry and fear and anxiety. And Paul's teaching out of what he knows, what he's learned, what God has shown him. Paul is not some author who writes from a position that hasn't experienced any of these things. He wrestles with them even now to some degree. And so he's teaching about these things and he wants them to have peace. So in Philippians 4 verse 10 he says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. And you were indeed concerned for me. But you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need. For I've learned in whatever situation I am to be, what's the word? Content. 830 service was more awake. Say it again. Content. So here's what he's saying. I'm really thankful that you guys sent that gift. I was really blessed that your concern for me was revived. But hold on, I'm not doing this for the money. I didn't need that gift. That doesn't sound like a very good start for a thank you card, correct? Write that to your grandma. I I didn't need the sweater you got me, but thanks anyway. It probably won't go well. But but this is what he writes. He's saying, "I, I don't need this stuff because I've learned to be content. Now, I want you to understand a few things about contentment so we can be really clear on what we're talking about. It doesn't mean you can't want something. Because from the same prison, Paul writes to Timothy. And from that same prison, I want you to listen to what Paul closed 2 Timothy with. He said this, do your best to come to me soon. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. And get Mark and bring him with you, for he's very useful for me in ministry. What is he saying? I'm lonely. A lot of people left. Some of my brothers abandoned me. Man, hey, Timothy, come soon. I miss you, man. I'm kind of alone. 
and I would like some fellowship. He, he goes on. He says, hey, when you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas and the books and above all the parchments. Hey, Timothy, come quick, man. I miss you. I'm lonely. It's getting cold. Can you bring my coat? I'd love to have my coat. And it, it's, it's prison, so uh, it'd be nice to have something to read. And there's still ministry to do from here anyway. Can you bring the parchment? Can you bring the books? Like, it's okay to want something. But what Paul's saying is right here, he's not being ungrateful to their gift by saying, I didn't need this. He's saying there's a difference between, man, I'd really love to have this, and I have to have this. There's a difference between that kind of want and full-on need. I love the way Tim Keller puts it. He said, general want is like, you're the dog, and the want is the tail. Chase your tail. Fine, it's harmless, run around a little while. Maybe you get it, maybe you don't, whatever. But this kind of like, the idea of discontentment means like the want is the dog and you're the tail. And so that want, that need is what drives you. It drags you through life. It controls your decisions. It controls your emotions. You are helpless. You're just sort of along for the ride because this desire is what's dominating your life at this point in time. That's what Paul's saying. I'm not dominated by anything. The circumstances around me aren't dominating me. I've learned to be content. If the coat comes, that'd be awesome because man, it's cold. I don't want to be cold, but I'll be okay. If my friends come through because of the other guys that bailed me, that would be awesome and I want fellowship, but I'll be okay if they don't. I'm gonna be okay. This is what he's talking about. And, and another thing about contentment and all these things, I wanna, I wanna say this again because there can be this Christian guilt that can kind of come on some people when they're in situations, especially when you have. Wealth, money, stuff in and of itself is not sinful. It may shock you to realize this if you've never thought about it. God is ridiculously wealthy. Like God is super rich. You guys think Trump's gaudy with the gold stuff? God paves his roads with him. Like God is wealthy, but God is generous. And even in the scriptures, you can see over and over again, there's places in the scripture where they uphold as an example of Christian community when people who have much are using those resources to take care of the needs of those who don't have. So, so wealth is given from God. I hope my children grow up to be incredibly rich, not only because I don't have a retirement plan, but because I want them to be able to use whatever God could bless them with to further that kingdom. I want them to do that, but I want them to be okay if that doesn't happen. And that's what Paul's talking about here. The idea is one of sufficiency. Am I going to be self-sufficient? I'm going to depend on my stuff? Or am I going to depend on God and be okay even if I don't have stuff? This is what we're talking about. Contentment is bowing our heart and mind to the will of God no matter what the circumstances are around us. Whatever happens, I'm okay. And I'm bowing my heart and my will towards God regardless. This is what he's talking about. And this is the context in which we get this passage, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And if most people that wear that on a t-shirt or put that on a bumper sticker realize what he's saying is, if I'm poor, I'm good. You probably wouldn't put that on your car. But that's what he's saying. If I'm poor, if I'm wealthy, I'm gonna be okay. I can live through anything because my joy does not come from these things. I'm okay, I'm at peace, I'll be fine. And then one more thing really quickly before we get into how to find this kind of contentment is that this idea, contentment is not a lack of ambition. The two are not opposites of one another. Because I've met people before, when I used to work with college kids years ago, I would run into all these guys that, that uh, man, I'm just, I just want what the Lord has for me. Awesome. Are you going to school? Nah. Are, are, do you have a job? Nah. 
do you have any plans in life whatsoever? Oh, God will show me. Okay, well, God put you in a place with free education and God's put you in a place where there's you know, freedom of choosing the kind of career you might want to go after and encouraging yourself. What do you think God might have you to do? I don't know, I'm okay. Well, the, the Bible has an issue with that. It's called laziness. And, and to think that the idea that contentment means that I can't strive for something, that's a false dichotomy. There is ambition that is holy and good. For example, when you see an injustice in the world or in the community around us, there should be a holy ambition that says, I am not okay with that. That needs to change. Or when you see those that don't have the gospel, that don't know who Jesus is, there should be a drive within us that says, the gospel has not gone far enough. I want it to go further. And we should have ambition that we want to protect our families and do the best we can, provide for them the best we can, but we don't root our joy in it. We don't root our emotional state or well-being in it. We're okay one way or the other. We just want to honor God and be the best stewards with whatever he sent our way, but we'll be fine. We'll be fine. So this is what he's talking about. So then how do we get that? Because that's what we're after. Everybody wants to be okay. Amen? You want to just, I just want to be okay. I want to have that peace. I want to know that I'm going to be all right. Well, let me show you a couple of things. Let's look at a couple of things here in the text that we can see from this that are good, at least earmarkers for it. And that's a good question to ask because Paul actually says it's a secret. He actually says it in verse 12. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstances, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger and abundance and need. So it's not self-evident. And so what's the secret that he tells us about? Well, the first one is that it's, it is learned. He says, I've learned this. Contentment is learned. And oftentimes it's learned because we went through circumstances where we had to learn what's really important and what's not, what's really going to sustain us and what's not. Here's something really interesting. A newspaper in London a few years ago did a survey and they tried to find out what is the age in which most people would say, yes, I'm content. At what age is the biggest percentage of the general population? I'm content. I'm okay exactly with my current estate in life. How old do you think that would be? Like five-year-old, right? Candy makes their day. But have you ever walked a five-year-old through the toy section of a grocery store or of a department store? Are they content? At no point when I walk my son through the toy section at Walmart or Target is he thinking about his toys back home. At no point. Want, 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 need, need, need. And then once I say no to that, I'm hungry. Man, that kid is always hungry. What is it about boys? Like he's always hungry. Like there's always want, never contentment. They don't even understand the concept of what contentment means at that point. Just little consumers, all of them. Teenagers, that's where it's at. You got energy, you're young, your whole life's ahead of you. Mom and dad still pay all the bills to take care of the food. That's the best, right? Parents, no. I need a new car. I need new clothes. I need this. I need this. I need this. I mean, if anything, that might be the worst because the whole world is telling you you're not enough. You got to keep up with the Kardashians. You got to do all this stuff. You got to look like this. You got to act like this. You got to sing like this. You got to dress like this. You need a boyfriend like this. You need a girlfriend like this. More, 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 more. And then social media, all the pictures and all that kind of stuff. I mean, this is insane. So it can't be there. 20s, college. They're out of mom and dad's. Some of them still getting bills paid by mom and dad. It's a pretty sweet deal, but they're not living under the authority. But no, that's not true. College was stressful. I look back now and I'm like, I still can't believe I got through that. 
I don't know how I passed in college. I really don't. Like, I, the number of classes I skipped, unbelievable. It's unbelievable how I pulled all that off. And the amount of stress I put myself under all that, the, and then all the other social pressures. I mean, especially this day and age, college is insanely expensive. And it's not like it used to be where you get a degree, you'll find a job. There's lots of stresses in that. Not to mention most college kids are taking, you know, they're, they're majoring in something that they are not even going to end up doing eventually anyway. So you come out of college having no clue what you're going to do. Can't be that. Twenties. Now I got to find a wife. I need to find a job. I got to make a place for myself. I need to do this. I need to do this. But I still have those teenage tendencies. I got to live for this image and I got to live for this. It can't be that. It must be the thirties. Somewhere in the thirties, and no offense to those who don't, but somewhere in the thirties, most people tend to have, they've got their wife, they've got their kids, they've got their family, they've got their home. Oh, come on. Who in the world can say my life got more peaceful when I had kids? So we know that's not true. You know what the average age actually is? More people are content at this age than any other age. You know what it is? 74. (laughs) 74. You know why? Because it's 10 years after retirement. It took you that long to figure out that not even retirement was going to satisfy the joy and peace you've been looking for. And you get to a place, maybe if God should bless us and we live long enough, we've been through enough circumstances in life to look back and go, I chased so many things. But now I'm near the end of my life and I really see what's important. And it's God. Contentment is learned. It would do well for a lot of us who are young to find 74-year-olds who have learned that lesson and maybe learn it through their experiences as well. It's called discipleship. I'm pretty sure it's in the Bible someplace, but we'll move on. Key number two, Christian contentment is independent of circumstances. I know we've mentioned this, but this is important because there's a difference between happiness and joy. The way to remember that happiness is based on what happens. Joy is much deeper. I will give you an example. I, just like Jesus, am a fan of the North Carolina Tar Heels. They're my favorite basketball team. And this March, I found much happiness in the fact that they made it to the national championship basketball game. And I know that I was on Jesus' side because Satan was at work in the mind and hearts of the refs throughout the game. But I was holding out hope for good and optimism. And at the end of the game, they're down by three. And there's only seconds remaining. And Marcus Page, Christian, godly man... <clears throat> throws up a miracle three-point shot. Some of you guys remember this? Like, it's, it's insane. Had someone on it, even has to kind of contort, throws it up there, ball goes up in the air. <gasps> Boom, basket's in, three seconds left, shot made. I was happy <laughs> for three seconds. <laughs> because in those last three seconds, Villanova came down, threw up a desperation shot of their own, and all Jeff's happiness went right out the window. That's so cheap. You know what I mean? That's so cheap that I would live for that. Something that could mean the world to me. And three seconds later, my life is over. And I, I can remember that. Like it's, it's hard to explain it and I won't go into it, although I'd love to, but, um, when you're there in North Carolina, growing up a sports fan, like being a Tar Heel fan, that's part of who you are. It becomes part of like your identity. And I can remember um, growing up, my father, if, if games like that happened or if Carolina lost, not forget a championship game, just a regular old game, you didn't go near him. You didn't try to talk to him. You just stay out of the way because the anger that came in because a guy couldn't put a ball through a round thing hundreds of miles away. How dumb is that? 
Ball goes through circle. Life's great. Ball doesn't go through circle. Life stinks. Like that's so dumb. But we do it. And we let it steal and rob our joy over the dumbest things. That's happiness. He's not talking about that. He's talking about the kind of happiness that is outside of the circumstances around you. And why am I taking time to emphasize this? Because listen, some of you in this room are doing that right now with church. Church becomes the external circumstance that I will do in hopes that it changes how I feel. And so I got a rough week coming up. We better go to church this week. Mom's dying of cancer. I better go to church this week. Um, I don't don't know what to do with my life. Tragedy's coming. I don't know where I'm going to go. I better go to church this week. Look, that's a good thing. Amen? You should come to church when life's hard. Of course, it's a sanctuary. Of course, we want you to do that. But, But if you're treating church as the external circumstance that will then affect your happiness on the inside, you're caught up in the doing. And this isn't what he's talking about here. It's not the doing. It's the knowing. Because think about what he says. In Philippians 3.10, Paul in Philippians 3.10 says, that I may know him. I want to know him. And then in Philippians 4.13, he says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. You have to know him first. It's not the doing. There's no Christian five steps to joy. It's about who you know. And this is at the very heart of the Christian faith. That's why at the very end, when Jesus is talking about those last days, there's going to be people that come to him. Jesus, didn't you see I did this and this and this and this? And Jesus is going to respond, depart from me. I never knew you. And so this peace of God is rooted in knowing Jesus, not having met Jesus once, not meeting Jesus from time to time, but rooted in knowing him, having an ongoing, real, genuine relationship with Jesus Christ. There's peace rooted in that, not in the circumstances that are going on. External solutions are never going to be the issue. It's about an internal relationship with Christ. Key number four, Christian contentment is the result of an ever-deepening relationship with Jesus. You know what, you just said that, Jeff. Like, contentment, I'll be content as I know Jesus. Yes. And then the next point is, the more you know Jesus, the more content you're going to be. That is a deep well, friends. And the deeper you go, the more peace you're going to find. Maybe that's why. Someone who's known Jesus and walked through life and learned about Jesus gets to the age of 74 and they're more content because maybe they've finally drawn closer to him than they ever have before. They have years of history they can look back on to see what a faithful friend he was, the storms and difficulty he's brought them through, the highs, the lows, and they, like Paul, who's also nearing the end of his life, can look back and say, I'm okay. I have Jesus. I'm okay. Wealth, poverty, he will never leave me nor forsake me. I'm okay. There's a hymn writer. His name is Charles Weigel. Charles Weigel was a, a hymn writer many, many years ago, and, and, and he had given his life to writing songs of worship to God. And he wrote one song in particular that's still done in a lot of more denominational churches and such. Um, I remember it vaguely from when I was growing up. I had to go find like an audio version of it and go, oh yeah, I sort of remember that. But he, he wrote this one song that's one of his most famous and well-known songs. And, and people, you know, to this day, they would you can find his picture online just by Googling that song. Um, but it came out of one of the darkest moments in his entire life. 
because his wife, the love of his life, was fed up with him, was fed up with ministry. I, I don't even know all the circumstances around it, but she said, I'm not gonna support you and I'm not gonna support this ministry stuff. I'm out of here. And she left him and she took everything. And he was left with nothing. And he wrestled with all sorts of stuff from depression and all that as you, as you might imagine. And he tells the story. He went home to Florida, just trying to regroup, figure things out sat out on his veranda and was looking at the breeze blowing out in the wind and just thinking. And, and it was like God just started speaking to him. And, he, and this song came to him. And he got up and he went inside and sat down on his piano. He said, it was the easiest song I ever wrote. It was done in moments and I never changed any of it. It was just done. And it was called, No One Cared For Me Like Jesus. And I want you to listen to what he said. And here's what I want you to picture now. This isn't cheesy Christianity from 30,000 feet where nothing affects me. This is a guy with tears on his face as he writes. This is a guy experiencing incredible heartache and fear and anxieties and all those things that can come. And he writes, I would love to tell you what I think of Jesus since I found in him a friend so strong and true. I would tell you how he changed my life completely. He did something no other friend could do. No one ever cared for me like Jesus. There's no other friend so kind as he. No one else could take the sin and darkness from me. Oh, how much he cared for me. My life was full of sin when Jesus found me. My heart full of misery and woe. But Jesus has placed his strong and loving arms around me. And he's led me in the way I ought to go. Every day he comes to me with new assurance. More and more I understand his words of love. But I'll never know just why he came to save me till someday I see his blessed face above. Now, what is it that can cause a guy in the deepest, darkest pain of his life to write down every day he comes to me with new assurance? That is the result of an ever-deepening relationship with Jesus, of someone who is so, as we've said the last few weeks, grooved in towards the things of the kingdom, so rooted into the waters of life that when those storms came, he was built upon the rock and he stood. And he's able to say, though he's losing everything, no one's ever cared for me like Jesus. The, the man that builds his house on the sand, he says, clearly Jesus doesn't care. He's taken all my things. He took my wife. He took this. He took this. God doesn't care for me. And there are people everywhere that are pointing their fingers at Jesus to this day, blaming him. And the wise man that built his house upon the rock is able to say, no one has ever cared for me like Jesus. And the reason he's able to say that is the last one, key number five. You learn contentment when you see Jesus as being infinitely valuable. And that's kind of the problem with some of our, our generation now, where we live, the culture that we live in now, is we have so many things dangled in front of our faces, so many shiny bells and whistles, so many things that even our own marketing is telling us constantly, this will make you happy, this will make you happy, this will make you happy, this will define who you are. Even culturally, things like body images. If you, if you want to feel good about yourself, you need to look like this. This is ideal, and you're not there, but you need to get there. And so that's why we have so many identity issues with so many people today. Self-image issues, eating disorders, all those sorts of things. Or you need this relationship. You're no one if you don't have a wife, if you don't have a husband, if you don't have kids. If you don't do this, 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 this. But the reality is, is the Bible upholds Christ as the most infinitely valuable thing in the universe by a mile. 
And unless we can train ourselves to continue to gaze upon him, to be able to have that relationship deep and more and more, man, when we take our eyes off of him, we forget how valuable he is. We forget how good he is. We get distracted by all the junk around here. And that's what sin wants to do. Sin wants to present something as being better than Jesus. Whatever that thing might be. Oh yeah, Jesus might make you happy, but this will really make you happy. And so sin wants to put these things in front of us and lead us away. But what a friend we have in Jesus. The other hymn says, turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face. And then what does it say? The things of earth will grow strangely dim in the eye of his glory and grace. So in 20 years, if nothing changes situationally in your life, can you say he's good to me? I'll tell you this, the gospel alone, the fact that he died for our sin, that he bore our punishment on that cross and has then turned, did you hear what we sang in that, that one song? That, he, that God would look on him and pardon me? That alone, if God does no other favor for you ever, if he never lifted a finger to improve your estate ever, ever again, that alone is enough to make us be able to stand before him in 20, 30, 40, or at the end of our years, lift our hands before him and say, God, you have been good to me. No one has ever taken care of me like Jesus has. Amen. Will you stand and pray with me? God, it's so easy for me to say these things and teach these things and read these things and shake my head in approval. But sometimes it's so hard to live these things. And so God, may we echo the words of the brother that I'm so thankful of in scripture. Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Lord, will you show us how valuable you are? May we have a real encounter with you anew, Lord that we might see that you are the most infinitely valuable thing in this universe, that you are worthy of all glory and praise, that there is nothing we can desire that could compare to you. You're more precious than silver, more costly than gold, more beautiful than diamonds. Nothing we could desire compares to you. And God, then may your spirit invade our lives and give us, Lord, the power to reorient ourselves away from these things of the world. May we be rooted into you grooved towards your kingdom, our homes built on the rock. And I pray, God, that you would help us to worship because you are so worthy of praise. May your spirit, Lord, build in us a new desire towards your word. May that relationship with you be built as we spend more time with you, as we find ourselves communing with you and praying with you and talking with you and just knowing you. Lord, for those who may feel they're in a pretty good spot right now, that they're in that ever-deepening relationship, Lord, take them deeper. May we not be content. If there's anything we will not be content with, may we not be content with how close we are to you now. May we want more of you. Lord, don't let us be happy with ankle-deep water. Draw us closer. Take us deeper. 
And may we rely on you and your provision and your grace to be enough in our lives. I pray your blessing, Lord, on everyone that's here as they walk out of this place. Lord, may these words be things we can meditate on, Lord. If they're of you, may they stick. May we be able to chew on them. May they produce fruit because, Lord, your word is worthy of our attention and worship. And your word is given to us that we might change, that we might grow because you're trying to draw us towards joy and to make us more like Jesus. So have your way in the people of Heritage Christian Fellowship as your will is done in heaven. In Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. amen. Hey, let me encourage you on your way out. Again, the pastor's coffee's in there. I'd love to meet you guys. The prayer room's open, man. Go receive prayer. Go meet with the elders in there. And then we'll be here Wednesday night for our Through the Bible series. I love you guys. Have a great, great, great week. Go be with Jesus.